you have a Bible, you can open to 1 Corinthians. We'll look at chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. The text is also printed in the bulletin. We're getting to, uh, toward the end of our series on the Holy Spirit. Next week is the last one. Um, so this week we're talking about the gifts of the Spirit. And of all the sermons, I think, of all the sermons in our series on the Holy Spirit, this one on the gifts of the Spirit actually pro- probably touches on the most controversial topic in terms of uh, something that's been divisive in the broader church, the church at large. It's a big cause of fights. It's a big cause of divisions in the larger church so that now we've got whole denominations and, not, and clusters, genres of denominations who distinguish themselves from other churches because of their views on the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, because of their views on something like this passage from Paul. So it's actually ironic that churches fight about spiritual gifts and churches divide over spiritual gifts, considering that the whole point of them is loving unity in the church. It's uh, maybe borderline tragic irony, um, because the whole point of them is loving unity in the church. So this morning, that's what we're going to talk about, pretty simply, that the gifts of the Spirit are meant to facilitate that, our loving unity in the church. So let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, as we're gathered together to consider your word, we pray that we would not judge it, but that we would sit under it. We pray that you would uh, overcome the natural inclinations of our hearts to be judges of your word. We pray that you would teach us through your word and by your spirit this morning as we hear it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another the working of miracles. To another prophecy. To another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit... We were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, I know you saw this coming from a mile away, but Lord of the Rings. Uh, It's pretty obvious, the connection here, right? (laughs) You knew I'd go there right away. Uh, So, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien were friends. Uh, Lewis wrote the Narnia Chronicles, you're familiar with those, um, Tolkien 
I mean, it's probably the only other book I've read other than The Lord of the Rings is the Narnia Chronicles. It's what you get all the time for these examples. But Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings. They were great friends. They were Christians, both of them, uh, different kinds of Christians. One was Catholic and one was Anglican. But uh, Christians, they, they imparted elements of a gospel vision through their writing. Right? They, they wrote, their art was trying to impart elements of the Christian gospel so Narnia, everybody knows that Aslan the lion is a direct parallel with Jesus Christ. He's the only parallel in the books uh, with, with Jesus, and he's a direct one. Lord of the Rings, it can be confusing if you're looking for the same kind of thing. It can be really confusing if you're looking for one figure who sums up, you know, this, this, he's the direct parallel for, for Jesus Christ, rather than portray one character as the clear Christ figure, Tolkien portrayed each character, each of his main characters as possessing something of Christ-likeness. So the fellowship, the first book is called, first, first movie, if you've seen that instead of reading the book, um, the fellowship of the ring, each, each one, each person, reflects different facets of Jesus Christ. So Gandalf, he's the wise one. And he's the one that, uh, in his life, the power of resurrection is at work. Uh, Aragorn is the humble king, the humble king with healing in his hands. Uh, Legolas, the elf, he's this gracious warrior, kind of holding these two elements of grace and war together in the person of Legolas. And Samwise Gamgee, um, faithfulness, he exemplifies faithfulness and loyalty. So they're all, they, they work together as this fellowship, they work together, each one doing his part to advance the cause. They help one another. They honor one another. And only together can they fulfill their good purpose in the world. And the real beauty of the story is, is more than the victory that they achieve over the darkness. Right? The, the real beauty is more than the victory. It's the selflessness and it's the friendship that they share. It's the fact that they do this together. That's the real beauty of the story. Now, imagine the story of Aragorn insists, I am the greatest swordsman. I have never lost a battle. And then Legolas says, that's nothing. Because I'm the greatest archer. So your swordsmanship doesn't matter. I'm the greatest archer. And then Gandalf interrupts, have you seen me with my staff? You know? And Gimli, with my axe, we don't even need your other weapons. Can you imagine? It, it wouldn't be difficult to imagine them shortly turning their weapons upon each other to prove who was the best. And probably Legolas would win because he would just deal with them all from a distance. <laughs> but it's not difficult to imagine this uh, <clears throat> because we kind of do that all the time. We understand that kind of spirit. There are all sorts of ways that we highlight our own strengths, highlight our own character qualities or characteristics or skills or whatever it is of ours that we want to highlight in order to favorably compare ourselves with others. Uh, to exalt ourselves over and against others, we highlight our own strengths and we calculate ways in which we're smarter than our coworkers. My coworkers, I can't even believe they have this job. You know, I'm, I'm way smarter than them. I should be promoted. Um, we linger over thoughts of being more beautiful than our friends, or we get stuck on ourselves as better parents or spouses than other people around us that we know. 
We really get stuck on ourselves. We really think about it all the time. And again, it's ironic. Um, We'll even use spiritual gifts. We'll even use spiritual gifts as status symbols. As if my spiritual gifts primarily said something about me. When, when the whole point of them is this other-oriented love. It's this unity in the church, in, in Jesus Christ. So John Calvin, in his uh, commentary on this passage, says that the Corinthians abused the gifts of God for ostentation and show. And love was little, if at all, regarded. And you can imagine them saying it, and we can imagine it e- easily, because we can imagine ourselves in this kind of situation I'm the greatest because my gift is the best. I'm irreplaceable. Uh, No, no, your gift, that's nothing. Just look at what I can do. We get so focused on ourselves that we become entirely dismissive of others, not being thankful for them, uh, for their contributions, not honoring them, certainly not wanting to work together with them. And that's the real problem that Paul is addressing. He says in verses 4 through 6 here, now, there are varieties. There's, that, that word varieties uh, could probably better be uh, translated as distributions. There are varieties or distributions of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties or distributions of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties or distributions of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. So behind the distribution of these gifts... Behind all the varieties of these gifts, the source of them all is the triune God. That's what Paul says, the Spirit, the Lord, who is Jesus, the Son of God, and God, that's the Father, right? Behind these gifts, the source of them all is the triune God, and who's that? He's the God of unity. He's the God of love. He's the God whose every action is a working together. Each one of the persons is involved in every action of this triune God. And this, gives, this, this is the God who gives his people gifts, not to be used for the sake of self, but to be used for the common good, right? for the sake of the other. To each, in verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So these are the themes that Paul is going to continue through the next several chapters, talking about love, talking about uh, when we're gathered for worship, the way that we interact with each other, the love really, I mean, the next chapter, the love chapter, it needs to characterize everything we do. Uh, but later in chapter 12, I mean, we, we probably could have printed the whole thing and read the whole thing. Um, it's all relevant to this discussion of the gifts of the Spirit. But later in chapter 12, he uses the metaphor of the body, right? Just actually a physical body. When we talk about church membership, we're talking about the members of a body, like the members of your body. And, uh, and so he's using that analogy, which he uses several places in the New Testament. He's describing the church, and each of the members have their own place, and they have their own function, their own activity, that, that they're intended to participate in, right? So it says in verse 14 that the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say... Because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. That would not make it any less part of the body. So there are no superfluous persons. You might think as a member of the church, because you're not that guy or because you're not that lady, 
um, you don't have that gift, then you don't really have a place, or you don't, you're not sure what that place is, or how you fit, or what you should be doing. But there are no superfluous persons in the body of Jesus Christ. Each person has a gift, and each person has a place, and each person has a, a function in the health of the, the whole body. Right? Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? So, a body works rightly because it has many differing members with different functions. That's why it works well. Verse 21, the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. The church fulfills its purpose because each one is different and because each one has different gifts. And God is the one who's put his church together that way. That's all over the place in this passage. God is the one who's behind this. This distribution of the varieties of different kinds of gifts. Verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And in verse 18, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. So you have a place in the church. You have been given gifts by the grace of God. That's the important thing to remember. According to God's will, as he chose, God's the one who gave this to you, right? So by the grace of God, right there that undermines all boasting, all exalting ourselves, right? If you say anything like this or if you hear anything like this, it's entirely inappropriate. If you were really spiritual, you'd have gifts like mine. If you were really spiritual, you'd have this gift, which is the gift that I happen to have. You hear that. You hear it in churches. But the fact that these are gifts given by the grace of God, making ourselves out to be a big deal because of the gifts that we've received is entirely inappropriate. They're gifts. They're gifts. They don't say something about you as much as they say something about God who gave them to you. In fact, that's precisely why God has shared them with you is to say something about him. You have the gifts that you have, each and every one of you. God gave it to you in order to say something about him. Right? The gifts of the Spirit, we come to a passage like this and others um, in the New Testament, especially in Paul's writings, where there are these lists of the gifts of the Spirit, and they seem very strange to us. They're not opaque. They're not really mysterious and deep. You know, They're not sensational, ecstatic expressions of power that are just really extraordinary. Um, they're not even generically cool stuff that I can do, right? That's not, that's not the way that we should look at gifts when we come to a passage like this. The gifts of the Spirit are given so that as people can talk about the gospel effectively. That's every single one of these gifts. So that the people in the church can talk about the gospel effectively to build one another up and to do evangelism, to talk about Jesus, to edify each other in Christ. Um, so we're going to rush through what these different gifts are. Uh, sorry about that, but I wanted to show you how basically they're all oriented on the gospel. Right? So the translation in verse 8, you look at the first of these gifts that he's listing, um, the utterance of wisdom, it, it might, the, the translation makes it sound really enigmatic. I don't know why they did that, sorry. Um, I'm going to apologize on behalf of the ESV. 
it, it sounds really enigmatic and fancy, right? The utterance of wisdom. It just means a word of wisdom. A word of wisdom. And then uh, right after that, a word of knowledge. You know, words, pretty basic word. A word is how you communicate. And wisdom and knowledge, that's stuff that you should know about a life with God. This is how you live your life with God, with wisdom and knowledge, according to his revelation, what he's told you, especially in the scriptures here. <clears throat> so there's nothing mysterious about these gifts. I mean, if somebody's using these gifts, it's not like the lights dim and all attention focuses on a person. <laughs> it's, it's words of wisdom and knowledge that we got from God, like from the scriptures, <clears throat> they're probably not miraculous, not the, not the kind of fancy, spectacular miraculous that you would expect um, for some reason. But, but what we normally consider the speaking of wisdom and knowledge for the sake of encouraging people in the gospel. We've got the revelation from God, we've got the gospel, and we need to know how to apply that to our lives, and some of us can do that better than others. Right? Some of us can see the places where God's word here really applies to you in this way. Uh, so <clears throat> here's the thing. When talking about wisdom, Paul talks about wisdom a lot in 1 Corinthians. You can't just say he's talking about it in an entirely different way now. Uh, in terms, he's talking about it in terms of perceiving the real significance of Jesus Christ for us. The real significance of Christ. A significance that is not readily visible to everyone. And in fact, if you're not a Christian, if you don't have the Spirit, it's not visible to you at all. On the face of it, you look at the cross of Jesus Christ, and what, what does it look like? On the face of it, it looks like a failure. It looks like folly, stupidity, a waste. It looks like God's judgment of Jesus. It looks like God is abandoning Jesus. Um, a Jew looking at Jesus on the cross, this is the way Paul is talking about it earlier in Corinthians, a Jew looking at Jesus on the cross, would have thought, Deuteronomy 21, a hanged man is cursed by God. Accursed is a man who hangs on a tree. Accursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. God has forsaken that person. But Paul says that Jesus hanging on the, on the tree is the wisdom of God. And he says in our passage <clears throat> that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. No one speaking in the Spirit, no one equipped and enabled by the Holy Spirit, would ever say, like the Jews would say, Jesus is accursed because of his hanging on the cross. When What the Spirit of God helps us to say instead is, no, that Jesus, he's Lord. That Jesus is Lord. That one hanging on the tree, he's the Lord, and this is God's wisdom. And he actually was cursed by God. He was cursed, but it was part of the, the plan. It was a part of God's wisdom from the beginning. He was cursed for us because we deserve to be on that tree. So the Spirit gives gifts of wisdom to be able to perceive God's wisdom in the gospel and help people with it. Not to brag about my particular wisdom or knowledge or insight. The Spirit um, gives the gift of faith, verse 9. Uh, faith, this faith is probably something just slightly different than saving faith, which is a basic trust and rest in Jesus Christ. Um, <clears throat> but this is probably 
probably a, a, a somewhat m- remarkable assurance that God really is at work behind everything, behind all the difficult, difficult circumstances that you'd be prone to interpret as his, um, his judgment of you, or his being upset with you, or his abandoning you. Faith sees behind those things a God who is at work in his good providence with a vision toward participating in his mission. Right? It says in, um, in the next chapter, uh, Paul talks about faith that could move mountains. And he says, even if I had faith that could move mountains, but it didn't have love, it's not worth anything. But that faith that, um, that can move mountains, that's kind of a reference to what Jesus is talking about in, um, uh, toward the end of his life in that last week when he's overturning tables in the temple and he's cursing the fig tree and he's really talking about the judgment that rests upon Israel for not going out to the Gentiles with the message of the gospel. He's talking about that judgment Israel is characterized by the mountain because Mount Zion is, is in Jerusalem. This is the place where God is meeting with his people, Mount Zion. The Gentiles are characterized by the sea. That's a, a common image for the Gentiles is the sea, the nations. All the non-Jews are the sea. And, um, and Jesus says, if, if you have faith, this mountain will be thrown into that sea. Right? These people will finally go out on their mission like they're supposed to. And uh, so that's kind of the faith it's talking about. It's like, it's a, it's a significant assurance that God really is at work, and I want to be a partner with him, even in the darkest places. I'm going to go out and, um, and trust him to, uh, to share his gospel with him. So skip down in verse 10 a little bit. I know I'm skipping a couple things. I'll come back to those. But um, he's talking about prophecy. Prophecy is probably along the lines of uh, preaching and teaching God's revealed word, his revealed will. This is not like necessarily telling the future, what's going to happen next. It's, it's, um, it's declaring God's word. The ability to distinguish between spirits is like discernment or insight regarding the internal spiritual motivations that are at work in people. Um, various kinds of tongues. Now this is kind of something more miraculous to us, like happened at Pentecost, it's when you're able to share the gospel in a language you didn't learn. And the interpretation of tongues is when you can translate a language you didn't learn. Those are pretty significant, but it's about sharing the gospel. Uh, And all of these things have to do with encouraging each other, with God's word, with the, the good news of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ encouraging each other, speaking the word of truth to each other. So Paul, uh, early in our passage, he he contrasts spiritually gifted Christians with those pagans who are the followers of mute idols. And um, and the Old Testament says that those who worship idols like that, they'll become like them. So these, the followers of these idols, these mute idols, they've become like them and they have nothing to say. Those who follow after other gods have nothing to say. Those who are filled with the Spirit have everything to say about Jesus, about the gospel. So the two that I skipped in verse 10, they have to do with bearing witness, not uh, not just proclaiming the truth of the gospel, but testifying to the veracity of, like so so verifying or um, validating the truth of the gospel, the gifts of healing and the working of miracles. These are things we saw over and over again with the apostles 
There were signs performed in the early church to testify to the reality of the God who revealed himself in Jesus Christ in the gospel. Right? So Hebrews 2 has kind of an interpretation of this concept for us when it says that salvation was declared at first by the Lord. So the Lord Jesus is the one who came into the world preaching the gospel. And, and that salvation was declared first by him, and it was attested to us by those who heard. So the apostles who followed him, the, the disciples, they heard Jesus preaching the gospel, and they told other people. Right? It was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So even the apostles, we talk about gifts of healing and various workings of miracles and things, this wasn't just a power that they had at their beck and call that they could exercise whenever they wanted. Even the apostles, they exercised these kind of gifts that couldn't just muster up the power to do it at will. For example, Paul uh, left one of his companions sick in one city, didn't heal him. Maybe he tried, I don't know. But he's, he's writing a letter, he says, I left this guy behind because he was sick. Paul's healed all kinds of people before, right? Well, he can't just conjure it up. It's not a power that he possesses that he can just conjure up. It's, it's gifts that, that the Spirit distributes as he wills, as God wills. So when the Holy Spirit willed, these sign gifts, these particular ones, uh, they provided credibility. They backed up the words of the apostles as they're testifying to the gospel, backed it up with power. Right? It's true that Jesus raises people from the dead. Here, let me show you by raising your son from the dead. Um, so we're not exactly sure what Paul meant. I mean, commentators, that's why there's church fights all, all the time about this stuff. Um, commentators don't all universally agree about any of this, but, but I think it's clearly the important sense of them as you read this whole context. It's about the gospel. It's about our ability to encourage one another in the church with the gospel. So Alan Johnson says, uh, and he's a commentator on 1 Corinthians, he says that the whole purpose of the Spirit's concrete manifestations is to express the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord and to thus build believers into a community of love. The Spirit's gifts do not refer to abilities that believers are given, but to ministries of the Spirit, manifestations of God's many-faceted, many-colored, diversified grace. So these, these gifts that each one of us shares... Uh, they're manifestations of the, the many-colored grace of God. They're manifestations of components or elements or facets of the beauties and glories of God. So spiritual gifts are something that Jesus Christ himself possesses in fullness because he's ascended into heaven and received the Holy Spirit on our behalf and received all the gifts of God in him Spiritual gifts are something Jesus Christ possesses and shares with us as he shares the Holy Spirit with us. All right, so these gifts are facets of Jesus now as he reveals God to us. Jesus is the word of God. He's the revelation of God. He's the good news about God. And he's attested to by the power of the Holy Spirit that that is true. That Jesus is the word and the revelation of God. He's the good news of God for you. And after Jesus had shed his blood for us on the cross, after he had risen from the dead, 
when he ascended into heaven, he received all the gifts of the Holy Spirit on our behalf. That was the, the Old Testament reading from Psalm 68. Uh, Paul quotes it in Ephesians 4. It's another place when he's talking about the spiritual gifts. He quotes from Psalm 68, where it says, the Lord gave the word, right? So the Lord, he, it's a picture of God triumphing over his enemies. And the Lord gives the word, and it's the message of his victory. And the, the women are saying, this is amazing. This is great news. And the men are lying in the sheepfold. So that means they're all at home. None of them contributed to their salvation. The men chickened out and didn't do what they were supposed to do. And now it's the women who are proclaiming the, the victory that the Lord has won. The Lord has won it by himself, the salvation. This, the grace of God comes to us through Jesus Christ and the spoils of his victory. The spoils of his conquering death on our behalf. The spoils of his rising from the dead and, and ascending into heaven where he rules over all things as man was meant to do. God created man with the purpose of sharing his own throne with him over in, in perfect communion over all that he's made. Jesus has risen to that point and he's, uh, he's received the Holy Spirit. That's the spoil of his victory. And that, In Psalm 68 you get this, it's kind of an enigmatic statement that the the spoils that they're celebrating are the wings of a dove covered with silver, its pinions with shimmering gold. It's a beautiful Holy Spirit. And in pouring out His Spirit upon us, He shares the spoils of His victory with us. And now we have the announcement of His victory, like, like the women in Psalm 68. Now, now we can proclaim His word alongside Him and, and after Him. The, the victory, the gospel, proclaim it and build one another up with it. It's a victory we didn't win. But he won it and he's freely sharing the spoils of his victory with us. So this comes through the Spirit. The Spirit's mentioned 11 times in our passage. Um, he's the one Spirit. The one Spirit through whom all Christians were baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, doesn't matter what kind of person you are. doesn't matter your demographic. Right? You're brought together in one body through this one spirit, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So this is not reserved for a select few special super holy Christians who pray hard enough and get some kind of second blessing. Uh, every Christian has been baptized by Jesus Christ with his Holy Spirit. So did you know? That we've got ourselves right here, a real live charismatic church. But you didn't think so because none of us raise our hands during singing. Right? This is a charismatic church. A spirit-filled, spirit-empowered congregation. When we help one another in various ways to believe the gospel, that's the Holy Spirit at work. And he's the one spirit. He's the spirit of our unity whose gifts are meant to promote our loving Christ-centered unity. So it's not so much about what gift you have. Um, it's, it, it's maybe not even about pinning down the gift that you have and understanding it perfectly. It's not so much about what gift you have as it is about the Spirit who wills it, who grants it, who shares it. It's about His purpose in it and the fact that ultimately we're talking about it's the risen Lord Jesus Christ, the man who's ascended to God's own throne, who wields his own power to grow his church through people like you. So J.I. Packer says um, in his book, Keep in Step with the Spirit, our exercise of the spiritual gifts is nothing more or less 
than Christ himself, ministering through his body to his body, to the Father, and to all mankind. From heaven, Christ uses Christians as his mouth, his hands, his feet, even his smile. It is through us, his people, that he speaks, acts, meets, loves, and saves here and now in this world. That's what happens when the Spirit's gifts are at work among us. We're given gifts for ministry. Really, it's Christ ministering through us in all his many-faceted, many-colored, diversified glories. That's pretty high privilege. It's one that we didn't deserve or get for ourselves. It's a beautiful purpose that we can only fulfill together. Only together. As recipients of the Spirit by God's grace. So let's do that. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it's a beautiful vision that you've given to us, recorded in the Holy Scriptures of Jesus, your Son, who is your Word, the one who reveals you to us, and who reveals your plan for humanity in his own person as he has risen and conquered death itself, all of his enemies being uh, put underneath his feet as his footstool, as he's exalted to uh, beyond all power and authority in the heaven of heavens, even at your right hand. He's ascended all the way to you, and you've shared your throne with him. And he didn't uh, go there to abandon us. He went there to fulfill humanity for us and to give us a share in his fulfilled humanity through your Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And we can only lay claim to little parts and parcels of, um, of his great humanity and the great word about you through the gospel that we've received, that we can hold in our hands in the scriptures. Uh, we pray that you would help each one of us to use the gifts that you've given us through the Holy Spirit. Help us to use these gifts um, selflessly, not calling attention to ourselves but always calling attention to Jesus for the common good, for the sake of others in the church, and for those outside whom you are calling into your own kingdom. We pray that the the word of God, that Jesus Christ himself, would be central as we use the gifts given to us by the one spirit, the spirit of unity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.